Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. Uh, my guest today is Blair McDougall, who was the head of the Scottish Independence Referendum Campaign, um, or at least the the what they called the Better Together Campaign, which was the campaign to for Britain to stay together and for, for Scotland to be remain as part of of the UK. Um in case you don't know, that was that side won. And uh we are still the United Kingdom rather than Scotland being a separate um state. And so that was partly down to Blair's efforts and his um his advice and his um guidance in the campaign. So I think talking to him is really interesting example of a political campaign which i think uh, you know other campaigns can learn from um and i think is it's an interesting as you'll hear discussion um lots of interesting nuggets there about messaging and um data and and tactics and strategy so um here's uh blair mcdougall and the better together campaign for the scottish Independence Referendum 2014. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. Uh, It's a podcast that looks at the sort of hidden side of campaigning and my Guest today is Blair McDougall, who was chief strategist to the Better Together campaign during the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. Blair, just to just to, to start with, could you just say a word about how you got this gig as the sort of as, as the director of the the campaign, and you know what, what, how did you find yourself in in that position? So my background was in political campaigning. Um, and communications. I'd been a special advisor in the Labour governments of uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, And this had to be for strategic reasons, a Labour-led campaign. So they were looking for a Labour person, a Scottish Labour person to to run this thing. Um, I think not many people particularly wanted to do the job. I think there was a feeling that it was um, very high stakes, um, and that there weren't that many people who who fitted the bill. Um, uh, and eventually, um, various various people who I was close to, um, uh, and Alistair Darling, um, uh, approached me and asked me asked me to do the job. Um, and then it was a case of um, having having agreed from the Labour side who who the person should be um, getting uh, the buy-in of the other two political parties, uh, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, who were who were part of that coalition. And sort of the forces ranged against you, as it uh, were, were sort of led, and for those who, who, you know, perhaps aren't in the UK, don't know that much about the referendum. But the, the key the key protagonists were really were the, were the, the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, which... Who had spent their whole career, um, their whole lives campaigning for uh, for independence? So you know, got their messages you know clear from the start. Whereas you guys, I guess, you know, was sort of ha- had to sort of start not necessarily from scratch, but you you had it wasn't something that defined your life. 
I, I think that's right. I think for so for most people, I think on the other side of the debate, um, as you say, this was um, what they existed in political life for. Whereas we on the other side, whether you were you know a liberal democrat, a, a socialist, or a, or a conservative, you defined your politics and your your activism in, in very different terms. So I guess it wasn't so much starting from scratch in terms of, um, you know, the, the campaign machinery being there and things like that. But I think in terms of developing a language that was effective, um, framing for the campaign that was effective, um, I think unlike the other side, that was something that we had to we had to construct from from the ground up. Yeah. And did that um matter at all in other words did it you know was it an uphill struggle to try and you know get the messaging right and work out what your your key messages were or you know how you were going to conduct or orchestrate the campaign and, and create the mood music uh yes and no so i think i think from the other side they they had obviously had uh you know decades to refine and, and hone their messaging to try out different arguments we had to do it in more of a hurry. But actually, the, the framing that we started with, which was this message of um, the best of both worlds, it was saying to people, you could have some of the things from the other side's proposition that you found attractive, you know, distinctive Scottish identity, more democratic decision-making um, made in Scotland, but without losing the things that you valued from our side of the argument, which was you know being part of something bigger, the economic security that came from that. Um, and actually, we, we landed on that best of both worlds message pretty early on through research, um, and it uh, it was the frame that we, we, we went through all the way um, through the, the entire campaign. Um, so that was a mixture of, you know, really good strategic insight from the, the politicians we were working with and really good research that got us to the right place um, early on. Actually, the, the difficult part wasn't so much finding the message. The difficult part was more getting a pretty disparate coalition of campaigners to, to stick to the message. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because obviously... With most campaigns, you know, you might imagine, even though you might be reaching out to some uh, some unusual suspects, as it were, or, or different um, different groups, you know, you had to reach right across the divide. And I guess, you know, the the, the main people you had to work with was the, was the Tories, the, the Conservative Party uh, in, in the UK, Conservative Party, which was... Um, not your natural sort of bedfellows. How, yeah, how easy was it to sort of keep them on side, keep the messaging on side, and and did they ever, or did you ever fall out big time about about how to do it, or did they accept your your leadership on it? Um, I don't think it was a key as as black and white as falling out. So I think there were there were some people within the um, the conservative leadership. Um, people, people like Ruth Davidson, um, Andrew Dunlop, who was David Cameron's um, a, a chief advisor, who really understood the strategy, really understood that this, in order to win this, it could not be a message about uh, feeling very strongly British and, and you know a kind of a kind of land of hope and glory sort of sort of campaign. 
um, that that this was about reaching out to a, um, about a third of the, the the electorate in the middle, for whom this wasn't really an identity question at all. It was a question of um, economic judgment. Um, really, it was a sort of pragmatic choice for them. Um, however, I think in, in that sense, in that sense, a better together campaign was no different than any other campaign where you have to draw together a coalition. Um, you start necessarily with activists who already strongly believe in your core proposition, and you try and turn them into the most effective messengers uh, for the people who don't um, already agree. And there's always a, there's always a tension there um, in any campaign. Um, but I think what what changes when you're trying to bring three political parties together is, as you say. The interests, the ideologies, the personalities of those three parties are very different. Um, and so the risk of diluting your message or making your message so vague that it becomes completely unstrategic and unfocused was 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 always there. So I think we had to, um, as well as basing our research, uh, basing our message on, on really strong research, um, and we had to also make a very strong case internally for why the message was what it was. Um, yeah. A sort of internal, inter constant internal diplomacy on behalf of the strategy so that you kept the coalition together. And, and again, you mentioned, um, you mentioned that, that middle third and also the issue of kind of the the data that the, the the intelligence that you had about that middle third and and also the the data in terms of contacting them do you think you're ahead of the other side on that issue i mean presumably you both you both knew you were fight, fighting over this middle ground but did you do you feel that you got it more right in terms of that middle ground in terms of the messaging in terms of contacting them getting data um so i thought i thought we were in terms of our, our our tactics on the ground, more focused on direct communication with the, those undecided voters than the other side were, and I thought we we spent more time talking about the issues than than they did. Um, I mean, I, I I remember in the last week of the campaign, um, almost the last two weeks of the campaign, every night there were what looked like street parties in, you know, the large squares of Scotland cities from the other side, um, where they looked like they were having a sort of a nationalist celebration. And and to me, I was delighted that that was where their resource was rather than having kind of, you know, less, less uh, 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 sort of patriotic conversations on the doorstep about, you know, practical things uh, uh, around people's standard of living, their mortgage, their job, that 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 sort of thing. Um, I don't think that's necessarily because our, our I thought our research was excellent, but I, I you know, you could see from the, the, the sort of architecture of the other side's argument that they were looking at similar, um, uh, evidence and similar similar coming to similar conclusions to us i think they were just less disciplined because and it goes back to your, your very first question for them this was this was an exciting culmination of what they had been working for for their entire lives it was a it was a deeply emotional moment 
for us, this was in many ways a distraction from what we thought was the real uh, business of politics, the real choices in politics. And so I think on a, on a sort of almost a, an emotional level, sort of almost within our DNA, we were better placed to have those conversations that took the issues of identity um, kind of off the table with those undecided voters. And, and I think the I think, frankly, they got a little bit carried away with it and for, and forgot mm -hmm. that while those, you know, while running the flag up the pole was for them the purpose, um, they kind of forgot that for the, the voters in the middle, this, they were really making a different type of judgment from from the people on, uh, on on either side of the spectrum who were more more firmly decided one way or, or another. Yeah, and I guess... Um at some point you you would have looked at your your assets and you know your i suppose your your top asset if you like your your figurehead um was it was uh, Alistair darling um who you know for the again for those who don't know was the who was a labor chancellor was quite sort of um I, you know charismatic isn't necessarily a word that springs to mind when you think of him safe pair of hands maybe very credible and all of that. And on the other side, there was um, Alex Salmond, who, you know, was probably the preeminent um, sort of, uh, you know, one of the preeminent, anyway, uh, political figures of the time, very persuasive, very um, confident, very self-confident. Did yes. you ever think, oh, you know, we've got a bit of a hill to climb here in terms of when those two go head to head, as they did, I think, on TV? What, you know, how are we going to play that one? No, strangely not, actually, because um, I think you're right, Alistair. Alistair's public personality is very, very serious. Um, uh, and that suited our framing of the campaign because our framing of the campaign was exactly that. It was saying to people, this is not like an election where you can change your mind in a few years' time. This is an irreversible decision that you are going to have to make personally um, and you need to get it right. And, and the risks are, are, are too high and the benefits you've been giving up are, are too great. And so in, in a way, his personality suited um, suited our side of the message um, quite well. On the other side, Alex Hammond, um, you're right, huge figure, dominant, dominant figure um, in all of our uh, research um, with voters. Um, but in a way, he, he was kind of the mirror of that. He was the embodiment of, you know, a boisterous, emotional, maybe impulsive decision. Um, and so his personality, um, uh, uh, whereas, whereas I think Al Alistair Darling's personality played to our strengths, in some ways, Alex Salmon's public personality actually played to their side's weaknesses. Um, and I think uh, you saw that. You mentioned the, the TV debates. We had two TV debates. And in the first one, I think Salmon seemed to believe that he could get through the TV debate in the way that he would at First Minister's questions by uh, just being boisterous and sort of, you know, thundering his way, his way through it. And actually, Alistair's more serious, um, almost sort of prosecutorial approach to it worked worked far better and i think alex Hammond ended up trimming his sails and did much better in the second debate by um uh, being a little bit more uh considered and a little bit less mm -hmm. um, shouty 
this this time uh, 2014 was probably I mean, it wasn't the start of social media but it, it was perhaps the maturation of that first phase of, of social media being a thing in politics um people being on there and and so on the one hand you know that was a tool that you could use but on the other hand you know it, it was the start perhaps of of when things started to get a bit, bit more nasty did you did that was that a factor how did you deal with it um it was it was a factor and i think it's inevitable uh, for a couple of reasons that, that that would have been the case firstly i think referendums as a way of making decisions inevitably divide people into you know very binary tribes you're asking people to make a binary choice and to ignore all the things they have in common with each other when they should be um, uh, looking looking more for common ground. And, and, and that, for me, is kind of what politics should be about. Um, I think the other thing that made it inevitable was that this was um, about identity and it was about the question of difference between different national groups and whether national groups were compatible with each other um, within existing uh, institutions. And so um, I think the those two things coming together with, I think, uh, certainly for Alex Salmond, a, a very populist instinct made made for a, an environment where the emergence of the, the the types of things we the types of debates we now take for granted as being very um, divisive on social media came through. I think the other thing uh, in terms of social media, which was really a revelation for me within the campaign and, and came to me quite late on in the campaign was that really for the first time in a campaign, the validity of an argument didn't rest on, you know, the journalistic credibility of, of the source of the information. It rested on your relationship with the person who was sharing the information within your social network. So I remember we did a focus group with um, a professional group of voters, a group of voters who weren't in our core, our core kind of um, voter contact group, but uh, we wanted to sort of keep tabs on them. And I remember an accountant talking about a conspiracy theory about secret oil fields off the coast of Scotland that were mm. being, being hidden. And the moderator asking him, well, where did you get that information? And he, he, he didn't really know the source. He just knew that his friend had shared it on Facebook. And that for me was a sort of lightning bolt moment um, that, that the referees that you used to have in politics um, of, of journalists sort of being trusted adjudicators of, of what was trustworthy and what wasn't were being replaced with these these personal relationships. And I think that that was, I think you're right, that we, we were probably one of the last campaigns where that was, that was an, not the sort of primary um, uh, sort of information environment for people. Did you, yeah, thinking about that sort of the info wars, as it were, and the way that, um, I guess, you know, um, different sides were sort of um, explaining the issues or using the media to explain the issues. And I, th I think I'd seen, I think it was uh, maybe Rory Bremner, the comedian, had made a joke about uh, both sides have got their propaganda machine. On the one side, you know, they've got this, the Scots uh, nationalists have got this this uh, this guy who who does a blog and is was quite powerful. And on the other side, you had the BBC. Was it ever um, was it ever sort of a feeling that 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 
you know, the sort of the British institutions uh, were lining up behind you. And that it was almost sort of an embarrassment that they were, you know, that they were doing that. Or, or did you not think? No, that was a and, and, I, and, I, and I think I think a lot of that feeling of, of bias come, comes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, which was about the, about the competing frames. So our frame was about being sure it was about looking at evidence and facts. Their frame was much more about national belief. So it, it put less of uh, importance on the views of experts and on, you know, analysts who would appear on the news um, every evening. And I think the thing that, that, that hugely frustrates me is that the, the other side came out of the, the referendum believing that the BBC had been terribly biased. And they had worked the refs all the way through. You know, there have been demonstrations against broadcasters and and just abuse piled on to, to, to journalists for asking awkward questions. But the reality was within our campaign, we were unbelievably frustrated constantly with the BBC. We felt that they allowed um, their instinct towards balance to be more important than their duty for, for objectivity. So I remember one, one evening we had, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists, governors of the Bank of England, all this, these sorts of, uh, uh, sort of quality of people um, making a point which was sort of helpful to our side of the argument. And they had found some sort of random academic from an, uh, uh, some university who didn't even study, you know, economics or teach economics. And there was a sort of feeling that the the, the value of the arguments that were being made um, wasn't the important thing for for the BBC. It was actually um, that they had to find someone constantly to balance things. And so it felt it felt. So for us, deeply ironic that the BBC was viewed as being, um, you know, on one side of the debate by, by the, the the nationalist side. But as I say, I think I think I think the real reason for that is for them, they didn't understand why the BBC, and I and I think they still don't understand why the voters themselves were not asking the same question they were asking. Um, the question they were asking was, do you believe in being, you know, Scottish? Do you believe? Are you proudly Scottish? And for um, the rest of us in the middle, actually, that the question over whether we were proudly Scottish or whether we thought Scotland was a great place and a capable place was never in doubt. It was just a question over what was the best future for Scotland. Was it inside or outside the, the UK, and and what made economic sense? So I think I think a lot of those questions of bias come from really that sort of fundamentally different view. Okay, we're going to stop there for for a short break. And we'll be back with uh, Blair McDougall in, in, in a few moments. Okay, we're back, and uh, we were talking about um, uh, yeah about the the accusations of, of bias, I guess. But but one thing related to that that I was um, 
I was thinking about was um, the weaponization of the idea of Project Fear. So the the idea, which I think was successfully weaponized in 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 the Brexit campaign mm. of, of one side, you know, create saying if 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 you do this, then all these terrible things would happen. But uh, that it, perhaps that was I don't know how successful you thought that messaging was, but it was certainly used by uh, the, the nationalist side in in this um, campaign. Yeah. So for for me, the thing that was interesting about that was. I think the impact on the voters was was not the impact that um, the nationalist side had intended. Um, so voters, when they heard this language, um, it was a very, um, you know, kind of inside the beltway, insider kind of kind of terminology, and they didn't know what the backstory was. They didn't know what the 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 the, the, the kind of um, history uh, was behind it. Um, and all they heard was the, was the, the word fear, and, they, and that kind of reinforced an anxiety that they had. I think part of the reason I think it worked, it did, the, 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 that framing didn't work in the Scottish referendum and maybe did in the, the Brexit one, was we were very careful to constantly narrate what was going on whenever our opponents accused us of scaremongering. So if they said in response to something, um, uh, something an expert had said or something one of our spokespeople had said that we were scaremongering or fearmongering or whatever, um, we would be very careful to, to respond to that by saying, uh, let's be clear, they are uh, crying scaremongering because they do not have an answer to the question. It was really important to narrate for the voter and to sort of have that, that kind of meta meta narrative going alongside your actual messaging to explain what was happening, and I think I think you see that a lot in response to, as I think there's a failure a lot of the time in response to populist messaging, where you know on these kind of culture war issues, um, people on the other side of the argument jump in and have the argument that their opponent wants them to have instead of stopping for a second and explaining why your opponent has taken the position they have. Um, so in you know these culture war examples, you know, stopping for a moment and saying, look, the reason the reason they want to talk about, you know, trans bathrooms or whatever it is, is because they don't want to talk about the economy, your standard of living, whatever, whatever the mm -hmm. the issue is that you would rather talk about um, as a campaigner. And that for us was what we did all the time was just narrating, uh, you know, when they talk about Project Fear, when they try to dismiss um, uh, rational concerns about um, uh, 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 the future of Scotland. Um, it is because they do not have answers to these questions. Um, and so sort of turning, turning something, a message from them and an attack from them that was supposed to undermine our, our confidence into something which undermined voters' confidence in, in, the, in the other side. I don't want to turn this into a discussion about Brexit, but did you, when you looked at the Brexit campaign um, and, and the, you know, the Remain side, did you, did, did you think that was just a less, less well-executed campaign? Or, I mean, obviously there's a lot more going on, but did you feel, yeah, they, they've got some real problems with their messaging? So I think I think both the both the Brexit um, 
and the Scottish referendum both occurred because there was a crisis in the sort of shared identity which underpinned both of those unions. Um, uh, and I think that crisis was probably more pronounced um, uh, uh, between the, the UK and the European Union than it was between the UK and, 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 and Scotland. Um, and so I think, I think it's, in some ways they had a more difficult job. It was easier for us to turn the benefits, the economic benefits of being part of the UK into things that which were deeply tangible, um, because we could talk about we could talk about currency, we talk about the funding of public services um, through our messaging. Um, I think that we're um, the campaigners at the centre of the, the the Remain campaign had a an additional disadvantage was um, too many people on the Remain side. Um, including people in my, my own party, the Labour Party, had internalised the idea that, in inverted commas, negative campaigning um, was counterproductive. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a constant um, stream, I think, of friendly fire directed towards the, uh, the Remain campaign, criticising um, that, um, uh, you know, spending too much time talking about the economic risks um, of, of leaving the EU. Um, and I think that goes back to, I think, what I was talking about early on and, the, you know, the real importance of having a strategy which is really firmly grounded in research and which you're then able to do the internal diplomacy so that you don't spend all your time putting out fires um, from, from people on your own side criticising your strategy, that instead people, even if they don't particularly like your strategy or your message, that they understand why you're making the judgments you are. And I think if they had had uh, that um, sort of firmer shared um, understanding, um, then it might have given them more space to have a, a more effective, more aggressive message on the risks, the economic risks of leaving leaving the EU. But as I say, I think, I think the people who ran the Remain campaign were, you know, incredibly professional people. Many of them were people we had worked with um, in the, the the referendum in 2014, and I think they had a they had a tougher job than we did. Some people I, I've seen I've seen this in doing the research for this, but some people described um, the, uh, the 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 nationalist campaign as as being more fun. You know, the, the your campaign was um, by by token less less fun and. Yeah, I suppose. Did you did you feel that they looked like they were having more fun, and did, did it matter to you? Um, they they certainly ran a campaign which was more concerned about looking good, and I would say we were more concerned about winning. We were more concerned about doing doing what what needed to be done in order to 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 win. And I think very early on in the campaign, um, they had they had launched their campaign with um, you know actors and. Singers and they, they 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 did it in a in a cinema, and one of the early realizations for us was not only that we couldn't you know compete um, uh, uh, in a sort of contest about being more interesting, but actually that we shouldn't that that was the wrong the wrong frame for our campaign. There was never there was never going to be a more interesting story in the referendum. Than, you know, one of the one of the members of the of of 
the, the, the G7, one of the permanent members of the Security Council, the country that used to, through an empire, run most of the most of the world. That country dissolving was always going to be the most interesting story in the referendum. Scotland voting uh, to remain within that union was simply not as interesting a story. So if we fought on the basis of trying to be interesting and, and sexy and all the rest of it, we would have, we would have lost because that wasn't for us um, the test. So I think coming to that realization that we could be more more prosaic and, and, and less poetic um, actually liberated us to talk about the things that actually mattered for those voters in the middle. And they were more, you know, arguably more boring things, but um, by the same token, more important things, you know, things like your job, your um, the, the, the currency that, um, you know, you're, 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 you engage with the economy through. Um, these were serious and sober things, but they were ultimately the things that those voters in the middle were making up their mind on. Um, mm. I think I think the other thing, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, they, they, their whole strategy was about momentum. So their organisational output had to reflect that momentum. So they had to get people together in in rooms. They had to have rallies and marches and visual uh, 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 sort of output that reflected the idea of a country that was on the move and a campaign that more and more people were coming towards. We didn't have that test, so we could quietly send people out and you know door to door to knock on selected doors in small groups and not really you know feel that we had to do those huge symbolic mm -hmm. moments and again if we had joined in that fight then we would have simply i think been reinforcing our opponent's frame um, instead of sort of patiently working through the the, the economic and pragmatic arguments that, that in the end i think won it for us there was a moment to i think you know a week or two out from the from the referendum itself where the the polls looked like they were actually converging and you you looked like you'd mm -hmm. lost momentum and there was a i guess a wobble at least it seemed that way um did you have a wobble in terms of the strategy did you want to change course um were there people saying that you should change course were you know was there a panic in the ranks um, I think there was, I don't think there was a panic. I think what there was a realisation that having got through, what, by that point, two and a half years of campaigning without our side really facing any sort of crisis, that this was maybe an inevitable moment of drama that we had to get through <laughs> um, uh, uh, to do that. I think there was also, I think all the way through, we expected there to be a moment where um, there was a sort of head versus heart moment um, and or a head versus heart decision that had to be made. And at one point, there would be a point where um, the heart took over. Um, and I think you saw with movement in the polls, um, those people in the undecided group who were more more heart than head starting to make their decision whereas those people who were um still you know maybe maybe more skeptical more um more reacting to our messaging 
didn't appear in the opinion polls as people who had made up their minds yet. They were still undecided. So I think an element of that was was foreseen. But I think an element of it as well was that there was a kind of ebbing and flowing, particularly I think after the after the second second TV debate. What it did enable us to do was to take the message that we had been um, offering all the way through of of economic security alongside more decision-making in Scotland, that that best of both worlds message, it allowed us to take that moment and really use that that moment to reinforce both those messages. So um, I remember writing a a memo um, when there was a poll that had put the yes side, uh, a YouGov poll that had put the yes side marginally ahead. And it seemed obvious to me that that was an opportunity to reinforce the message about the seriousness of the decision, um, the, the, the irreversibility of the choice um, that people had to make. Um, and so we spoke a lot about how there was no room for a protest vote, that this was an irreversible decision. Um, and I think the other thing that happened that helped us to reinforce that side of the, the messaging, the, the, the kind of economic security and risk side of the messaging, um, was that the, the markets had a real reaction to the polls. You know, suddenly Scottish companies uh, or UK-wide companies based in Scotland had lots of, you know, money wiped off of their value. Um, it suddenly started to become a very a very real proposition. Um, and I think that sucked a lot of the populist energy out of the other side. I think it went from being something that was cost-free to something that, that suddenly felt very real. Um, and then, then on the, mm. the, the more decisions made in Scotland side of our best of both worlds message, that moment enabled us to sort of knock together some heads and instead of having three separate offers of what more powers looked like, so each of the three parties within our coalition had set out um, uh, their own manifesto for what an enhanced um, and more powerful Scottish Parliament would look like, um, but that's obviously not a terribly clear message because it's three different policies from three different message carriers. And so that, that period enabled us to sort of bring that together under a clearer process, um, which helped us to, to, to sort of um, get back to that, uh, the other side of the, uh, the frame for us. Um, so I think, the, I mean, the lesson for me for any crisis and any moment of mm. you know, potential, uh, potentially you know, doubting your strategy is you can either use a moment to panic and and you know try and set a new course, or you can reevaluate and and ask yourself what about this moment is helpful to us. Um, mm. And I I I genuinely don't think we would have won by eleven points in the end had we not had that moment. I think lots of people who might have been tempted to vote to leave the UK. Not out of huge conviction, but just out of a you know a general general sense of grievance, um, would have done so had there not been that moment, um, you know, a couple of weeks out that that, that sort of clarified for people that they were um, they were playing with live ammunition that this was a, this was really going to happen um, if they yeah. voted. But you didn't get because um, I, I can imagine if you're David Cameron, the UK Prime Minister at the time. Of seeing seeing the polls converging a bit, and 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 then that one poll that that showed mm. them ahead, that you know he might have got on the phone and said, well, you know, we need to, you know, because while 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 there's a gap between you, I guess he's happy with the strategy, 
but while they conver- when they converge, you know, there's a te- there may have been a tendency to panic. So he did he didn't get onto the on the phone to you, or, or did he? No, 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 nothing like that. No, no. Um, I mean, I remember I remember we had a we had scheduled we had scheduled an all staff call just to um, uh, so we we knew we knew the people at the very you know core of the communications and and, and team and operations teams were 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 very level headed and weren't panicking um in any way uh but you want to you want to spread that throughout your entire organization so we i remember we had a call when we knew that poll was coming just to say look here's here's how we're going to use this to our advantage don't worry we knew there would be a there would be a tightening of the polls um and i remember i remember i had left my uh uh, my mobile phone in a taxi, and so was unable to to call in, and it, it, I think that created ended up creating a sense of uh, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think I I think what it what it did. I mean, all all the way through from the very first day of our of the campaign, and and, and this campaign for me was about a thousand days long. Um, all the way through it there was a frustration on our part that um, people on our side of the debate who valued um, remaining within the United Kingdom did not feel that this was a real proposition and so felt they could keep their heads down, kind of ignore it, get on with their lives. Um, and that was true whether if you were you know, a potential donor to our campaign, a potential volunteer, or if you were, you know, the the uh, a trade union leader or a a, a, a business person um, whose whose uh, workforces would be impacted if if we had left the United Kingdom, and I think suddenly in those last two weeks um, there was a sort of jolt of electricity that went through everyone um, and and sort of shook off that complacency that had been there um, all the way through. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't pretend at the time I was sort of rubbing my hands together and saying this is great and <laughs> how wonderful is this for our strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, with hindsight, it was I think probably the best thing that could have happened. And I, I guess um, psychologically, having a, an end date to the campaign is helpful. They said a thousand days is a long time. Did you? Were there moments where you thought I'm not really, I can't really do this, or did you get? Um, abuse or ever feel you know it wasn't for you it was it was taking too much of a personal uh, toll I, I know that you you had a, a family during this period and you know that you had... I, I did yes I uh, my wife and I had two kids um, during it I mean I think I had um, I didn't realize at the time I had I had I was kind of increasingly unwell throughout throughout the campaign which I had put down to um, a campaign schedule with you know two 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 young infants in the um, in the house and, and sort of lack of sleep. Um, but I, I I think for me one of the one of the things that probably protected me and probably made me better at keeping a strategic focus was that this wasn't for me a kind of existential fight that was about something that was terribly central to my politics. You know, I, I would describe myself as a democratic socialist. I describe myself as an internationalist. I describe myself as a devolutionist. But, you know, issues of identity and, and, and kind of Britishness and Scottishness 
um, uh, are really important to me, but they are completely separate from my politics. Um, so the struggle in that there's, insofar as there was a struggle was spending quite so long on something which felt deeply important, but not, um, not kind of animating kind of political political cause um, uh, uh, for me. Um, uh, that I got an awful lot, and still do to the, to, to to this day. I, someone someone on Twitter the other day fantasizing about hanging me from a lamppost. Um, for whatever reason, that kind of stuff has never never really penetrated. Um, and I think one of the one of the, 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 the skills, I'd say, one of the, or rather one of the tactics for dealing with that kind of personal um, abuse um, uh, and, and even threats that come your way is to use them as a resource. You know, I think for, for, and it was easy for me to do that because a part of our whole message was that this, not just about the outcome of the referendum, but that the, the process of the referendum itself was something that was divisive um, and unpleasant. Um, and so actually, when there was abusive, divisive, hateful um, uh, behaviour um, against against me personally or against against um, someone on our side of the debate, um, we, we simply used it as evidence to back up that part of our, our messaging. Um, uh, and there's something, um, you know, there's there's something almost like karma about that. That if if your opponents are, um, uh, if they do overstep the mark, then uh, I think it's absolutely fair game to use use that abuse um, and, and that bad behaviour to damage the cause that they seemingly care so strongly about that they are <laughs> motivated to act in a, 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 a in such a way. Well, uh, it's been. Um, we could talk for a lot longer, but we 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 need to we need to wrap it up. It's been really fascinating to speak with you today. So, yeah, thank thanks uh, very much, and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy.